So I want to read a passage from the book. You visited Hampton Creek, now rebranded to Just, and they showed you their plans and their vision for the future, which included, quote, a future 400,000 square foot meat production facility, 200 bioreactors, producing 76 pounds of bluefin tuna per second, Mm -hmm. alongside clean Kobe beef, and ultimately what they would boast would be the best chicken meat in the world, and they claim they're going to try to do all this by 2030, which is only 11 years away. How much of that is is hubris in your opinion? (laughs) This is C2C, where we cover innovation in the food and CPG business from conception to consumption. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Today, I'm really excited. My guest is Paul Shapiro, who has been vice president at the Humane Society of the United States. He is a inductee into the Animal Rights Hall of Fame. He is a TEDx speaker, and now he's a best-selling author. And we're going to talk about his best-selling book a lot today. It is entitled Clean Meat. How Growing Meat Without Animals Will Revolutionize Dinner and the World. And now Paul's also a capitalist and an entrepreneur, founding his own company in this space. So, Paul, it's great to have you. Welcome to the podcast. Gary, it's my honor to be with you. Thanks for having me. So, you know, Paul, let's just jump into it. A lot of the topics you touch on uh, in the book are about why we as humans need to move to cleaner protein sources it's about issues related to the planet. It's about a lot of other issues on top of it. But, um, you know, let, let me just ask you this. Aren't, aren't we already doing enough? And, and I'll use myself as a personal example. My wife is a vegetarian. She eats eggs and dairy, but no meat of any sort. Uh, I have drastically reduced my meat consumption. I still eat a steak now and then, but I try to make it a grass-fed steak. I have substituted Morningstar bacon in the morning with my eggs. I am a big fan of both Impossible and Beyond. As you know, those are taking off like crazy. Don't we have enough options, and aren't we all doing enough for the planet at this point in time? Well, Gary, if everybody was doing what you and your wife were doing, we'd be in a much better shape than we are today. But sadly, meat consumption is going up, not down, both in the United States and around the world. And in fact, meat consumption in the places where it matters the most, like China, India, Brazil, Mexico, many of the uh, biggest countries with the fastest growing economies and uh, burgeoning middle classes are eating more and more meat per person, and they have more people as well. So on the one hand, it's really great that people are escaping poverty and growing into the middle class. But a side effect of that is that people generally consume a lot more meat, which takes a very serious toll on the planet. So... Uh, if everybody's doing again, like you and your wife, you know, I think we would probably be in uh, having a very different conversation. Uh, but sadly you guys appear to be an exception rather than the rule globally speaking. Well, just to be clear, my wife still beats me up constantly for still eating steaks and things like that. So <laughs> we're not, we're not a hundred percent guilt free in my household at this point in time. What, um, now, um, uh, I, I believe uh, you did a recent Ted talk and uh, you, you, you brought an analogy onto the stage and 
talked about how consumers can shift because this is a big challenge, right? How do you give, how do you get people to, to give up meat? Cause we love meat. And now you have hundreds of millions, as you point out of more people who love meat, who can finally afford it in places like India and China. So you did a Ted talk recently and you showed up on stage with what a harpoon. Can you tell our listeners what that was about? Uh, well, first and foremost, I would recommend to listeners that they not attempt to bring a six-foot-long real harpoon on an airplane. Bad <laughs> idea. Uh, so definitely check it if you're going to travel with harpoon. But, yes, yeah, so, you know, look, America used to be a whale-killing nation. We were the leader in the global whaling industry. And, uh, you know, virtually every home in America was lit with whale oil. They had lamps that were lit with whale oil. It's a huge commodity. Today, we are a whale-watching nation. People still go out on boats to find and shoot whales, but now we're shooting them with cameras rather than our pins. So how did this industry, the whaling industry, go from one of the most important factors in the U.S. economy to being totally irrelevant and re really being viewed as, as if it were morally repugnant? And the answer is not that there was a big moral awakening back uh, when this transition occurred. What ended up happening is in 1853, about the same time that Abraham Lincoln was getting ready to start trying to save the Union, uh, Abraham Gesner was getting ready to save the whales. But Gesner was not a pioneering environmentalist. He wasn't somebody who cared about whales at all. He was a Canadian geologist who uh, invented kerosene. And kerosene ended up helping to displace whale oil as the lighting agent of choice in American homes. And within 30 years of, of that patenting, the whaling industry had been totally decimated, 95% reduction. So this is an industry that had been so big, so influential since the colonial days, and now within just a mere few decades was virtually non-existent to the point where today – if you told somebody you were going to kill a whale, you would probably be viewed as a moral monster. And so the purpose of telling the story is really, you know, what does that have to do with today? Well, for a long time, the animal agriculture industry and animals being raised for meat, for eggs, for dairy, has been a very politically influential force. Well, now there are new technologies that are coming online that may have a similar impact that may render the exploitation of chickens, pigs, and cows to be as archaic as our exploitation of whales seems to us now. And there are many technologies that could do this. Uh, one of them is called clean meat or cultivated meat, which is basically taking microscopic cells from an animal and then growing those cells outside of the animal's body into real, actual meat. We're not talking about an alternative to meat or a substitute to meat, but rather actual animal meat that was simply grown without the animal. It's not science fiction. It's now science fact. In fact, I've eaten this kind of meat many times myself. I've eaten clean beef, duck, fish, uh, liver, even foie gras. And there's about 20 startups racing now to commercialize the world's first ever slaughter-free real meats. So... Let's talk about this cellular ag agriculture, uh, or, or, or as another name for it, cultivated meat. We've got a lot of consumers who are embracing impossible and beyond, but they're not for everybody. Some people are biting into those and saying, nope, no thank you, I'm going to stick to my regular hamburger. The, the, the whaling analogy you used is, you know, it sounds like one day people just went down to their store to buy oil for their lamps and instead of whale oil they put kerosene in there but they weren't drinking it so there was no <laughs> there's no yuck factor there but uh, you bring up 
terms like cellular agriculture, and there's a real yuck factor, isn't, isn't there? And you talk about that in your book. Aren't there people who are turned off by the idea of meeting, eating something that used to be called lab-grown and so on? <laughs> well, the only people who refer to it as lab-grown are probably people who are trying to induce a yuck factor. But yes, I totally agree with you, Gary. Look, you know, some people may have a concern about having so much science in their food. I would suggest, though, that the current ways that we produce meat are not really leaving a lot to call appetizing either, though, and people still eat it. I mean, just take chicken as an example. Most of the chickens who are raised for food in our country are genetically selected to grow so big, so fast, that many of them have difficulty even taking more than a few steps before they collapse. They are raised wing-to-wing -wing in barns of tens of thousands of other birds living in their own feces. Uh, they are often pumped full of antibiotics. The air in there is choking with ammonia. And then when it's finally time to slaughter them, most people probably would prefer not to hear about it at all. So when you consider just how inhumane, unsustainable, and unnatural our current methods of meat production are, and yet people still eat a lot of it, I think that many people will think about growing meat without animals as something that actually seems maybe even naturally preferable because for in reality, most people today don't eat meat because of how it is produced. Few people are sitting around thinking, oh, I'm so glad that animals suffered and were killed for this. Most people eat meat in spite of how it is produced. And when there is a good alternative that is delicious, that's affordable, and that is nutritious, I think a lot of people are going to be quite happy to eat it. So certainly a lot of people, consumers, are becoming more and more educated about animal treatment. You didn't even mention feedlots. That's a whole separate issue in the beef industry. But you even point out in your book, even though consumers have more and more options all the time to replace meat, such as plant-based options, the percentage of vegetarians in our society hovers around three to five percent. So mm -hmm. the argument, look, you need to change consumers because you're doing bad things for animals. That doesn't seem to be getting through. It seems like a lot of people sort of shrug and say, I know, I know, guilty as charged, but I'm, I'm just in denial and I'm going to go back to my regular hamburger. Yeah, I think that's actually a pretty good analysis of the situation at hand, Gary. Most people do what they do because they like doing it. And it's very hard to change human nature. Seems like a lot of people really like eating meat. That's why as soon as people start getting more money, one of the very first things they do is eat more meat. And so, you know, even if you look at the um, so-called recidivism rates of vegetarians, I mean, the vast majority of people who become vegetarian end up stopping being vegetarian. Now, I wish that wasn't true. Uh, I'm not stating these facts because I like them. In fact, I strongly dislike them. Uh, but we have to play the cards as they're dealt. And it's a lot easier to change meat than it is to change human nature. So when you look at the facts, the facts are that the percentage of vegetarians in America really hasn't changed in a few decades. It's a very, very tiny fraction of the total population. And it's even lower in many other parts of the world. Now, in some countries, like in India, where there's religiously based vegetarianism, or even in places like Israel, there's a lot of um, religious reasons for it as well. You do have higher percentages. But in most of the um, most of the world, you basically have increasing rates of meat eating, not increasing rates of vegetarianism. So, so if we're going to break through to consumers, or if folks like you who are in the business now are going to break through to consumers, isn't a lot of this packaging and branding? And you know, I want to take some of the information you go through in the book, which is when 
When these cells were cultured from a small biopsy of an animal for the very first time, way back in those days, which wasn't that long ago, people were calling it originally in vitro, which was Wow. <laughs> Not very clever marketing. And so then in your, your book, you kind of shifted to the term clean. Now, your book came out about a year ago. Um, you know, cell-based has been put forward as an option, then cultured. And very recently, I was at a conference last week in California talking to Barb Stuckey. A lot of our listeners will know Barb. She's with Matson, a leading yes. innovator and creative food strategist. And she told me the story about how the Good Food Institute, GFI, had hired Matson to say, let's let's figure out this branding once and for all to give the best name to this product to minimize the yuck factor and get consumers on board. And it sounds like they landed on cultivated. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, first, uh, I'm glad you bring up Barb because I really admire her and her work. In fact, uh, I read her book in the past year. It came out a few years ago, but I I read her book in the past year and and really was impressed by it. So, uh, you know, one thing to keep in mind about that latest test that you mentioned, which is an extremely important uh, consumer survey, is that they didn't even test Queen. And so the reason they didn't is because basically uh, many folks in the meat industry view the term clean meat as a disparagement of conventional meat. And they view it, um, you know, essentially in the same way that oil companies probably don't like hearing solar referred to as clean energy. Uh, They don't want this type of meat being referred to as clean meat. So uh, for some, that has led them to think, well, we shouldn't use clean meat because it's uh, offensive to some people in the meat industry. I've heard people in the meat industry, though, themselves using the term, and I I really don't have that big of a concern about using clean meat. I like that term. However, I'm fine with cultivated meat, too. I like it. I think it sounds good. I think it's really important to have a term that's both accurate and appealing to consumers. And so clean is accurate. It's accurate both because it's like clean energy, that it is more efficient and more sustainable for the planet. But it's also just literally true. I mean, think about it. The meat that we eat today uh, oftentimes is contaminated with E. coli, salmonella, campylobacter. That's why you have to treat raw meat almost like toxic waste you know you're not allowed to put it in the same grocery bag if it touches your kitchen counter you have to disinfect it it touches your hands you have to wash your hands well that's because there's fecal pathogens on there e coli salmonella campylobacter these are intestinal pathogens that can sicken us if we don't cook the crap out of our meat literally that's what we're doing we're cooking the crap out of the meat Mm. and clean meat on the other hand It doesn't have that big of a concern on that because you're not growing intestines at all. So you don't have to worry as much about uh, those type of intestinal pathogens. In fact, you're more likely to infect the meat with your own hands than the meat is to infect you. So I I think clean meat works from that perspective. It is literally cleaner and it is cleaner for the planet. However, uh, if people don't want to use that, that's fine. I think cultivated meat is a good option. Um, It is cultivated and uh, that term seems to me, uh, at least on an intuitive level, to be kind of appealing. Maybe not as good as Queen, but it seems uh, it does seem uh, more appealing than some of the other options that have been out there. So Barb had expressed really serious concerns about the term cell-based, and I was sympathetic to her concerns because cell-based sounds about as appetizing as in vitro. Hmm. Uh, you know, like who's out there saying, "Hey, I want to eat cells." <laughs> uh, 
but you know, the reality is that all meat is cell based anyway. I mean, the meat we eat today, plant based meat, uh, this type of cultivated meat, it's all that's all cell based. It's all based on cells, so it doesn't really even distinguish anyway the food. So I think both from an accuracy standpoint and from a consumer acceptance standpoint, cell based is probably lower on the list of ones that I would choose. Um, but if people go with cultivated, I think that's good. So a rose by any other name, this is is a nascent industry, uh, but uh, you've got to hand it to folks like yourself and Barb and other folks in the industry. They're thinking about these things, even though this is a very, very young industry. So that's good. So, you know, uh, hey, we're going to go out to consumers with a more appealing name for our product, but... But then you got to overcome other barriers. I thought one of the interesting analogies you used in the book is how Americans learn to like sushi. And <laughs> I can personally relate to that. I grew up in the, in the upper Midwest, and the first time I heard about sushi, I was probably in college, and I just probably made a face, and I you know, said, are you kidding me? Raw fish? Why would anybody ever eat that and but then you pointed out in the book you know how there was sort of a stepping stone approach that a lot of americans were able to to ease into sushi you want to share that story uh yeah sure so uh, you're hitting a nail on the head gary and that there's lots of foods that people eat today quite regularly that are normal that in the past sort of seemed quite abnormal and sushi was one of them of course, people in Japan have been eating sushi for a while, but people in the U.S. a few decades ago not really eating that much sushi. And the idea of eating raw fish certainly didn't sound that good. And then raw fish plus seaweed it sounds really gross. Um, and so, you know, there is a uh, a tale uh, that perhaps is a po- is um, apocryphal, but it's told quite often, and there is some truth in it, no doubt. That you know, basically, some innovative chef in California basically had this idea that you could give it a name, which in this case was the California roll. So it made it seem not like a foreign exotic uh, dare that you're going to eat it on, but mm-hmm. rather a more um, something that actually, you know, sounds uh, more native and uh, turned it inside out to put the rice on the outside. So it wasn't like the sushi was the most, uh, excuse me, it wasn't like the seaweed was the most obvious thing you're eating. And that helped people ease into the idea of eating this type of food that they hadn't eaten before. Yeah, and uh, I have to tell you, I could actually relate to that. I think that's how I tiptoed into sushi. I tried one of the California rolls, and I thought, okay, I guess there's some raw fish somewhere in here, but but it actually tastes pretty good, and I've never really tasted anything like this. And then maybe the next time I went to the sushi restaurant, I had one little tiny piece of uh, tuna sushi or something like that. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I, I find this all the time with foods that, you know, people don't eat and they become accustomed to them and you become habituated. I mean, in, in some ways also, you know, this isn't even uh, that analogous because sushi was a new food for people to eat. Meat is not. And so in this particular case, people can continue eating the same things, hamburgers, hot dogs, meatballs, sausages, chicken nuggets, and so on. It's just going to come in a different way. It's going to have been produced in a different way. Probably a more analogous story would be what happened with ice, which is that if you look back 150 years ago, the only ice that people had was ice that came out of nature. People had to purchase uh, ice that had been harvested from lakes and then shipped all around the world. Well, enter the advent of industrial refrigeration, and all of a sudden, you had a way to make ice simply by cooling the water down right in front of you. Well, the ice barons of the day were livid. 
over this technological innovation. And they railed against what they called artificial ice, saying that it was unnatural, unsafe. You didn't want your kids eating it. And, you know, you fast forward to today and every single one of us has an artificial ice maker in our homes. In fact, we wouldn't even consider living without them. We don't think there's anything artificial about it at all. We just call them freezers and we consume ice still, but it's just produced by technology. Well, similarly, you know, meat, the only way they've had to get it for millennia is out of the bodies of animals. Well, now we're developing technologies to actually produce meat without having to do that, but it is still meat in the same way it's still ice, just produced via technology rather than nature. Clean meat or cultivated meat is still meat. It's just produced through technology rather than inside of an animal's body. Mm-hmm. So, so, so let's, let's, let's take that argument and say, okay, that, uh, that's going to all work out. If a guy from Wisconsin can uh, end up really loving sushi, uh, consumers can uh, accept, uh, you know, cell-based meat that, uh, that is grown uh, in that method. But there's a much, much bigger issue, right, Paul, which is the economy of scale. And mm-hmm. you, talk, you talk in your book about the first hamburger that was produced in this manner was in 2013 it cost $330,000. So everybody kind of laughs and says, wow, this is this industry is going nowhere. But then you also point out three years later, now it's 2016, we've got a $1,200 meatball, still way too much, but there's an order of magnitude improvement, but there's still a long way to go. So bring us up to speed. And even since your book's a year old, what progress has been made in the last year? Quite a lot, Gary. It's pretty amazing how fast the price falls. Uh, you know, Just, which is profiled in the book, although in the book they were at that time called Hampton Creek. Now they are called Just. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, they now say they're making chicken nuggets with um, with chicken cells that cost them about a hundred dollars a nugget. So you know, it's not ready for KFC yet. But compared to a few years ago, where it's twelve hundred dollars, and even before then, when it might have been a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars, now you're talking about just a hundred bucks. And so you know, you start thinking about how technology accelerates and how prices fall. And if you think about uh, you know the iPhones or uh, smartphones that most of us have in our pockets today, the very first one was probably over a billion dollars to produce. Now it's affordable enough that uh, that hundreds of millions of people have them. Or similarly, if you think about uh, something like photo editing, where uh, Instagram, the if you wanted to have the uh, type of photo editing tools that Instagram offers you to in today, if you did that 10 years ago, it would have cost you over $2 million to get all of that. And today it's just a free download. So you can see how technology can accelerate the precipitous drop in prices for certain products if enough R&D can go into them. The problem is that in the clean meat field, so far my guess is there's been around $50 million of uh, R&D that has gone into this field from all of these companies and their investors hmm. combined. You really need hundreds of millions of dollars to to accelerate this in in the way that um, you've had in is, photo is it, editing. Is it, and ha- is it happening? Are, are the hundreds of millions of dollars starting to show up? Uh, it's starting to, but not yet. I mean, the the most well capitalized of any of these companies is Memphis Meats, which is profiled in, in my book, Clean Meat, mm-hmm. and they've raised about twenty two million dollars so far. Uh, there's another. There's uh, some Israeli companies that have raised like ten or so million dollars, but most of them have raised a few million each, which can do some basic R and D research. But you, you really need a lot more to bring it to a matter of scale where you can actually get these products onto grocery store shelves. And so, what's you know, are you sanguine about this? Do you think that scale is coming next year, five years from now, ten years from now? 
I know crystal balls are tough, but what you know? What's your opinion? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. There's a saying that it's hard to make predictions, especially about the future. But I <laughs> would say, yeah. I mean, if you're asking about next year, no, I, I can't imagine. I mean, there may be some sales of of queen meat in the next year, but they'll be minuscule. You know, it'll be like one restaurant, one place, one time. Um, you're not going to see it on on Walmart shelves. Uh, but yeah, five years, I think it's possible. Uh, I, I do think that you could see it, depending on how much investment actually comes into the field. That within that time. Now, at the at the same time, though, there is a parallel track that you also have these plant based alternatives that are really speeding up. Mm. You know, Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods are taking over the fast food industry. They're moving onto grocery store shelves, and so uh, you know you have in, in the same way you might have a competition, let's say between wind and solar to help replace fossil fuels. You have somewhat of a competition now between plant based meat and clean meat to replace factory farms. And so far, plant-based meat is winning in spades. But of course, uh, clean meat uh, is certainly uh, trying hard and will have uh, perhaps some advantages once they bring that scale up and, and price down. Yeah, clean energy is an interesting analogy, isn't it? Because uh, you know a lot of the strategy has been all of the above in the energy business, which is we're not going to get there real soon with just solar and wind and other renewables. But let's get rid of coal first. And that's happening. Hundreds of coal plants are shutting down. And they're moving to, some of them are moving to solar wind. Some of them are moving to natural gas. Natural gas still has issues, but better than coal. So is that a reasonable analogy for this space, you think? Oh, yeah. I think it's a great analogy. I mean, in the same way that you want lots of options for fossil fuels, like the problem of fossil fuels is so bad. You want lots of different alternatives. You want wind, you want geothermal, you want solar and so on. Well, in the same way, uh, factory farming is so problematic for the planet, for animal welfare, for public health, that you want lots of alternatives. Yes, you want cultivated meat, but you also want plant-based meat. Uh, You also want blended meat where you can put plant proteins directly into the animal meat, which is what my company, The Better Meat Co., focuses on. And you also want other efforts to simply encourage people just to eat less meat. You know, it's uh, not so bad to eat a bean and rice burrito or to eat a uh, three bean chili or like a Tuscan pasta. You know, there's lots of ways that you can uh, do do your part without having to eat meat or meat alternatives. Uh, But you want all of these options because the problem is so severe that you're hopeful that some combination of them will actually solve it. Yeah, and I definitely want to come back to Better Meat Company and ask you a lot of questions about that because I think that's an intriguing part of the option here. But I got to ask you, uh, just today in the news, McDonald's launched uh, a new plant-based burger. Did you read about that or hear about that? Yeah, so they are launching in some test locations in Canada, the Beyond Meat Burger. So I would uh, travel to Canada for the sole purpose of being able to go into (laughs) McDonald's and order this. Uh, Interestingly enough, back in the mid-90s, I believe, McDonald's, uh, maybe it was the late 90s, but McDonald's did have a... um, a plant-based burger that was tested in Southern California and New York. And I did go buy it and I liked it, but sadly I was part of an extreme minority at that point and people were not ready for it or maybe the products weren't good enough. But now here we go again, about 20 years later, trying that out again and hopefully with much more success this time. I'm not going to travel to Canada, but I'm definitely going to try it if and when it comes to, (laughs) to Colorado here. Do you know what they're calling it, by the way? I thought it was cute what they called it. 
I loved it. Yeah, the PLT, plant lettuce tomato. Yeah. I can tell you, you may not go to Canada, Gary, but when I do, I will order it and send you a photo of me eating a PLT. <laughs> Sounds good. Best-selling author of Clean Meat, How Growing Meat Without Animals Will Revolutionize Dinner and the World, and founder of The Better Meat Company. So let, let's carry this uh, this analogy with clean energy to the next level, which is I've been reading multiple articles about how in areas of the country that were heavily dependent on coal mining, people are suffering. Uh, you know, people have lived there for families for over 100 years. The male parts of those families have gone into the coal mines, and now they're out of a job. The, the production of coal is falling very, very rapidly. And so in your book, you point out that a lot of the biggest food companies are investing in different angles with uh, animal-based traditional meat replacements. Cargill is doing things, Tyson, Purdue, Conagra. These companies are getting in there. That's starting to feel like, uh, you know, the trend that could happen to traditional raising of meat could be on a pathway to coal. And... You know, you think about this family cattle ranch in Wyoming where it's three generations, and they don't think of their life as a job. They think of it as a way of life. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you feel about these people? Maybe, you know, if, if what happened with the whaling industry, which was kind of blink of the eye, 30 years, right, basically one generation, if that happens to cattle ranchers and other people, family farms and things like that, uh, even the dairy industry in Wisconsin, where I'm from, how do you feel about that? And the the you know the pain and suffering is going to inflict on those families potentially. Sure. Well, I, I definitely hear you on that, Gary. And I think of this in a lot of sectors in our economy. Uh, I doubt, though, that most people are shedding any tears for the former blockbuster employees while they are streaming Game of Thrones on, on online. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the reality is, is that we have technologies that displace uh, industries that are not as innovative. And so, the you know, there are no longer blockbuster videos throughout the United States and all those employees are no longer working there because a, a superior technology took over. Uh, same thing with film. You know, I, I actually remember when one hour photo came out and I was so thrilled. I couldn't believe it. I was like, so psyched. I couldn't believe that we were going to get our photos in only one hour. Well, imagine now, you know, the idea of waiting an hour to get a photo. I mean, you'd be upset if, if you had to wait one minute. You know, if it took your phone one minute to produce a photo, you would throw your phone out. If that happened widespread, like Apple stock would crash. Um, and so we don't really have, I mean, there are still some one hour photo places, but nowhere near what it used to be like. Uh, similarly, uh, in the tobacco industry, you've had a really stark reduction in the amount of tobacco that is being smoked as public health campaigns have reduced the number of smokers. And those tobacco growers, many of whom have been in tobacco growing families since the colonial days, I mean, for, you know, literally hundreds of years growing tobacco on that land, have to find new ways of making a living because the demand for that product is no longer there. And there have been really uh, effective government programs that helping to retrain folks, for example, in the tobacco field to grow other types of crops. In fact, really interestingly, the Wall Street Journal had a good story about the uh, the. Uh, so, in short, there's there's not a causal correlation between this, but it's actually quite a, a illustrative of what's happening in America right now, as tobacco smoking has gone down hummus consumption has gone up. And when Sabra purchased um, 
when Sabro, excuse me, when Sabro, the leading hummus company, was purchased by Pepsi, uh, they ended up, you know, having a huge increase in demand for chickpeas. And so there were programs that helped the tobacco growers switch to growing chickpeas instead for hummus. Mm -hmm. And so the same is so, I think, with a lot of the uh, food revolution that's taking place now. You're still going to have farming. You're just going to be farming different crops. So mm. with plant-based, you know, they're, they're growing peas. Rather than growing corn and soy to feed cattle, you grow peas to create a Beyond Burger. Um, in, even in the case of cultivated meat, you still have to feed the cells. I mean, the cells that are being fermented to make this meat still have to eat something. So you got to grow crops to feed them, too. So we will still have farming. It'll be just different types of farming. And in reality, you know, farming today is different than it was 20 years ago. 20 years from now, it'll be different from the way it is today. And the economy will keep on moving on. So I just read a article yesterday about a think tank that has studied consumption of fluid milk and animal-based protein. And I remember, I don't know when it was, 15 years ago or so, when plant-based milk alternatives started coming out, soy mm -hmm. milk, later followed by almond milk, coconut milk, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and when I first heard about it, I thought, that's weird. I'm not drinking that. <laughs> I'm going to just stick <laughs> with, with regular milk. Here's the study. The study uh, now claims that milk uh, demand has already dropped 10% and is continuing to drop and perhaps is even accelerating in the drop. 10% is not nothing. That's a meaningful part of this supply sure. chain. And then the article said, you know, meat demand, traditional meat demand has dropped 1%. So are we, are we on the very leading edge of a tsunami here? Is that what you <laughs> think is going to happen? Well, I'm not aware of any data suggesting that meat consumption has dropped by 1%. Um, I, I would love to see the source for that. Uh, I presume uh, I would love to see that being uh, backed up. So if you could please email it to me, Gary, I'll be grateful. I will. But, but on dairy, yeah, I mean, you know, plant-based milk is now 13% of the fluid milk market in the United States. 13%, that's a lot. Uh, and I think it's only going to keep going up because people are going to be happy to drink lower cost, healthier alternatives, whether they be soy milk or almond milk or coconut milk and so on. Uh, and something similar will happen with meat. I don't know how quickly it will happen, but it will happen. You know, today you have less than 1% of meat that is being consumed is coming from plant-based meat. But in the future, that will rise. And with the ascent of companies like Beyond and Impossible and other players in the space, uh, you're going to see more and more that meat aisles of supermarkets may become protein aisles of supermarkets and that people are going to be happy to eat a greater diversity of protein regardless of where it came from. Maybe it will come from animals who are slaughtered. Maybe it will come from plants. Maybe it will come from animal cells that were cultured. Maybe it will come from microorganisms. There's a lot of companies now that are making uh, proteins from yeast, for example. Uh, so I, I think the future is one of a greater diversity of protein rather than one in which protein is really synonymous with meat from slaughtered animals. So there's a sister issue with the economy of scale to, to really scale up for cellular agriculture to replace traditional animal harvesting, and that is the serum that's required to produce these cells, right? And the, in the early stages of showing that you could grow these cells in a laboratory, you're basically having to kill animals to harvest their blood so that you could produce animal free, uh, you know, a, a protein replacement. So what's happening with that? 
Yeah, good point, Gary. So, uh, you know, the uh, the original iterations of, of the um, cultured meat are basically having as one component of that culture is a bovine serum. And that certainly is not ideal. It's extremely expensive and there are ethical concerns as well. So you don't want to have a situation where you go to market and you're using, uh, you know, animal ingredients to produce this type of meat, which is supposed to be slaughter free. So one it will never be commercialized with that because uh, the, that bovine serum is extremely expensive. There's not that much of it out there. Uh, the only reason it's really used is because, you know, humans have been culturing cells for about a century now, and that is a type of serum that cells really like eating. Uh, so they do well on it. They thrive. Um, but alternatives have already been invented. Now, some of them are also expensive, but they at least don't rely on, uh, you know, taking the serum from, from calves uh, to make them. So so many of the companies are already not using that type of bovine serum anymore anyway. Mm. They either have invented ways out of it or they're using types of cells where they don't require it. For example, there is a company in the Netherlands that's called Mutable, and they use a type of pluripotent stem cell from the umbilical cord of the calf, not from the muscle tissue, but from the umbilical cord. And they found that those cells don't require the bovine serum at all. So anyway, there's ways to get around it. And by the time this stuff gets commercialized, there'll be no way at all that they are utilizing that type of serum. Okay, well, that sounds like good news because that certainly sounded pretty creepy. Um, mm. So I want to read a passage from the book. You visited Hampton Creek, now rebranded to Just, and they showed you their plans and their vision for the future, which included, quote, a future 400,000-square-foot meat production facility, 200 bioreactors, producing 76 pounds of bluefin tuna per second hmm. alongside clean Kobe beef. And ultimately, what they would boast would be the best chicken meat in the world. And they claim they're going to try to do all this by 2030, which is only 11 years away. How much of that is is hubris in your opinion <laughs> too early to tell gary uh you know josh tetrick the ceo of uh, of just is certainly not someone who shies away from bold claims this is a guy who thinks big and he asks people to try to make a, a pretty grand vision of the future so i don't know how realistic that is to be honest for 11 years from now i hope it is though uh, i think it would take a lot of investment you know something like that would take hundreds of millions of dollars to build but uh, you know, that company has already raised hundreds of millions of dollars and maybe they can raise more and, and build that type of a production facility. I certainly hope so. Uh, but, you know, you got to start somewhere and simply selling any product anywhere would be a big, good first start. Mm -hmm. So let's uh, let's uh, let's shift gears. Let's talk about your company, Paul. Tell tell our listeners about Better Meat Co. and what your strategy is and your vision. Well, the Better Miko is an early stage food tech startup that is an ingredients company. We make plant-based protein formulas that we sell as ingredients to meat users for them to blend into their meat so they can use a lot less meat. In some ways, it's comparable to putting ethanol in gas. When you go put gas in your car, you don't even think about the fact that 15% of it is not coming from fossil fuels, coming from ethanol. And you just keep going. The car works the same. 
Well, our formulas can go into meat at generally a 30 to 50% ratio. And you eat the product and it really tastes the same. So for example, we are partnered with Purdue, the major chicken company, and they blend our product into their chicken tenders, chicken nuggets, and chicken patties for a product that's called Purdue Chicken Plus. And it's a, a frozen product. You can get it in Walmart, Safeway, Kroger, Albertsons. In fact, it's on the shelves of now 7,100 supermarkets across the country. Wow. And it demonstrates that you know, you really, in this particular case, can have your meat and eat it too. That if you are one of the you know vast majority of people who still eats meat and you want to eat less meat, well, yeah, sure, maybe you enjoy a Beyond Burger or an Impossible Burger every once in a while, but you can also enjoy this. And so uh, this is a good way to help bridge that gap uh, between the flexitarian market and products that they're really interested in that maybe aren't no meat but are certainly less meat. So is that the main, is that the core of the value proposition to consumers? you you know, you know, you should be eating less meat. This allows you to eat less meat. Is that really the core of it? Well, you know, my mission is to improve food sustainability. That's what's driving me. That's why our company exists. Uh, but I think for the consumer, uh, probably the fact that these nuggets have the same amount of protein as regular nuggets, but also have much less saturated fat, less cholesterol, fewer calories, more fiber. I think all of those are important marketing claims as well when you're thinking about why. And, and if you look at Purdue's marketing on this, they'll say, you know, basically you if you feed this to your kid, they get a quarter cup of vegetables per serving. Mm. So if you have a difficult time getting your kids to eat vegetables, you serve them these nuggets and all of a sudden they're getting some cauliflower, they're getting chickpeas, but it tastes and looks just like a regular nugget. So, you know, you look at it and it's not like you see whole vegetables in it. It's, it's all, it's all uh, in a formula that is is making a product that looks and tastes just like a regular chicken nugget. That's a, that's a second good value because certainly a lot of food companies are attempting to get more vegetables into their product. That's something a lot of consumers want. Yes, no doubt. So, and that's got to, I imagine that also uh, when Purdue has their board of directors meeting and somebody says, what are we doing about all these, uh, you know, these trends uh, that probably, uh, it probably makes them happy that they're doing something and that they're stepping and evolving into this marketplace. Yeah, I think that's true. I hope it's true. Um, in fact, Purdue's CMO, uh, Eric Christensen, was on stage at the Good Food Conference just a few weeks ago. We we're recording this at the end of September 2019. But just a couple weeks ago, uh, Eric Christensen was on stage at the Good Food Conference, and he stated that you know they're finding demand for this is so high that they are committed to spending half of their entire marketing budget for 2020 promoting these blended chicken products. Mm. That's amazing. That is amazing. So um, what are your biggest challenges at, at uh, Better Meat Co., leading that company? What, uh, what keeps mm -hmm. you awake at night? So many things, Gary. Uh, you know, people know that uh, trying to start a company is hard. I, I certainly knew that going in, and I have found that it it's true. It's hard. Uh, but you know, the things that you that keep me awake are thinking about how are we going to constantly innovate and create products and scale up products that can actually do the task that we want. Sure, there's all types of problems when you think about you know supply or production, um, all that. But what really is is keeping me awake is how can we keep innovating so that as we have success, like we are, other companies will enter the space and they're going to want to try to compete with us. And that's fine. I hope more companies will do blending because I think it's such an important part of the of the puzzle for 
for food sustainability, but how can we make sure that they are chasing after our last iteration rather than our current iteration? And so we're investing pretty heavily in new technologies that can enable us to produce cheaper and better proteins than the ones that we are doing right now. And so we believe that our current products, as good as they are, are only 1.0 and that we'll keep on iterating and making new and better products. So we are hiring. You know, We're looking for a whole host of people to join our team as we scale up and create a new type of uh, entrant into the plant-based market, these type of blended meats. Tell, tell us where you're based, where you're hiring, because some of our listeners will probably be interested in that. Oh, great. Well, we'd welcome hearing from them. Uh, we're based in Sacramento, California, and our website is bettermeat.co. So you can just go online to bettermeat.co and excuse me, bettermeat.co and uh, get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you, especially if you have a background, let's say, in food science or microbiology or uh, business and marketing. Those are the type of things we could really supplement our current staff with. Terrific. So you talked about innovation. Any hints you want to drop for our listeners on where you're headed next at uh, Better Meat Co.? Uh, the greatest hint that I would offer is that, you know, we are working diligently on allergen free. So, you know, when we right now, uh, we often use uh, some amount of wheat protein in our products. It works really well. We really like it, especially in breaded products like a nugget or a patty. It's good. You know, there's already wheat in there, so you're not adding an allergen. But we need to come up with uh, better ways to produce uh, allergen free products that are inexpensive. And that's really the holy grail for us, because, you know, you look at the products like Beyond and Impossible and they sell for multiple over the cost of commodity meat right now. Uh, my wife and I actually purchased Beyond Burgers the other day. They were $6.99 in Safeway for two patties, which are quarter pounders. So that mm-hmm. means it's uh, $14 a pound, whereas the beef that was next to it was less than $4 a pound. So, you know, you're talking about like multiples over the price of meat. We can't afford that. So they, they're allergen free using pea protein. It's a great product. I love eating it. I buy it. I, I love that company. Uh, but we can't afford to have that type of a cost for our product because meat companies are not going to want to blend us in if we're going to be 350% more than the cost of the meat that they're using. So when allergies are a concern, when allergens are a concern, then you know we have to find ways to offer allergen-free products that are cheaper. And that is our, our current holy grail. Mm-hmm. Let's talk, you know, a lot of our listeners are in R&D, marketing, new product development, innovation in the food industry. And so they're, they're probably thinking, this is a growing market. Uh, if my company is not in some way in this traditional animal protein replacement market, I need to think about it. What can you share with them in terms of the consumer profiles or personas or segmentation. I mean, what's what's what are the different target audiences here? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, if you look at the vegetarian and vegan market, which is you know the myth that these products are being targeted toward them, uh, that's a very small market. Sadly, I wish it were bigger, but that's a very small market. And so, products in the past, like Boca Burgers, for example. Uh, those oftentimes were targeted toward vegetarians or in the UK products like corn, uh, Q-U-O-R-N, were really targeted toward vegetarians. And they were typically viewed by people. And, you know, I say this sadly because I actually like those products and I've eaten a lot of them. But, you know, they're viewed as like a consolation prize for the vegetarian in the group that, you know, everybody else got to eat meat. And these people basically, this is what they get. So they don't have to just eat a salad. And 
Uh, now, though, those types of products that are not as meaty as the current iterations, um, you know, they're going to sort of try to catch up. But, you know, you have that segmentation uh, of the market of vegetarians and vegans who are happy to eat those products. But then you have the flexitarians, which are a much, much larger universe. Mm-hmm. These are meat eaters who would like to eat less meat, but not no meat. And those are the people who really are driving the demand for uh, these products right now. And they're uh, responsible largely for the success of companies like Beyond and Impossible. And so that audience, I think, is a far greater demographic to go after. And um, they are also, I would say, just functionally more important for creating the mission of improving food sustainability. Because if you could, you know, if you could get like 50% of people to eat, you know, 20% less meat per person, the total meat reduction is actually vastly greater than if you could get like 5% of people to be vegetarian all the time. Uh, so, you know, you look at it from either way, and it probably makes a lot more sense for companies to be targeting flexitarians rather than vegetarians. By the way, I liked the, the overall tone of your book where uh, I, I perceive you didn't take sides a lot. You understood that you've got these different people out here. You didn't you didn't judge the people like me who eat an occasional steak, right? So I appreciated that tone. But I guess for the food industry, it's, it's, it's actually good news, right? It's a growing pie, and there's just different slices and segments to go after. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and certainly, uh, if somebody has found that standing in harsh judgment is actually an effective method of persuading anyone to change their minds, uh, I'd I love to know their strategy. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm interested in, in what actually works. Um, and, you know, the reality is, is that all of us are doing things that are quite substandard. I mean, think about it, not just in food, but uh, I mean, you know, the shirt that I'm wearing right now, uh, I bought it at Costco for like $5.99. It's like a nice button, um, it's like a nice button type polo type shirt. Mm-hmm. And, and I have no idea how it was made. I presume it was made like in Bangladesh or something by people who are uh, in conditions that I would not want to work in myself. Um, you know, I, I say this as a way of pointing out that none of us are really so-called ethical consumers. Probably the only really ethical way to consume is just consume a lot less. Uh, but all of us are doing things that are probably, you know, when we really um, examine uh, them in, in a, with some scrutiny on ourselves, we probably think, oh, we could be doing better. And so that's the same with our food choices, especially with meat. Uh, it's the same in our transportation and energy sources and so on. Um, but I'd like to think that we can each do better. And it's a very easy thing to do to start with food, one, because of the big impact that it has, and two, because we do it multiple times a day. You know, I only buy shirts so often, uh, but I'm eating multiple times a day. And that's a good opportunity to try to make a difference. Mm-hmm. You know, speaking of consumer segmentation, I got to tell you a quick story about my wife, Paul. So she's been a vegetarian for 15 plus years. And so I have started to bring these products home now as a way to reduce my consumption of meat as a flexitarian, as you point out. So, you know, I bring home Beyond. When we go to restaurants that have them available, I'll order an Impossible Burger. And I've said to her, this is unbelievable. This is a win-win for you. You get to be a vegetarian, but you get to go back to something that tastes so much closer to real meat than that, <laughs> than that first generation you mentioned with Boca and, and, and other products. And her response was, I will not touch it. No way. 
nice. Well, she she basically has gotten to the point where she has been away from meat for so long, she thinks anything that is really close to meat is gross. So she's just <laughs> so which seems strange to me, but uh, you know, she's yeah. happy sticking with the first generation products. But I guess that just shows segmentation, right? In, indeed, and I gotta say something, Gary. I'm a lot closer to your wife than I am with you on this because I'm quite happy to eat a black bean burger. I would be if somebody told me I could never eat plant based meat again and I could just have like black bean burgers. Honestly, I really wouldn't care. Uh, and I have a, a good friend of mine who grew up. She uh, she grew up in India. And she was telling me, you know, she grew up as a vegetarian. The idea of eating plant-based meat is repulsive to her because she doesn't, she's never really eaten meat. So the concept of having something meat-like is uh, totally a turnoff to her. And uh, so I think, you know, you become habituated either through the way you were raised or, or like your wife, who's, you know, been a vegetarian for a long time, you become habituated to certain foods that you like to eat. And uh, it's harder to change your habits once you've been doing them for a while. Yeah. So, so, so Paul, before we go into wrap up mode here, is there anything specific that you want to add or share with our listeners? Well, I, what I would share is the following that so often people think about social change and they think, ah, you know, like nonprofit organizations, or I need to, you know, go do uh, some type of lobbying and get my congressperson to do something. Well, that's all good. I'm all for it. But the food industry is part of the problem, but it is also the solution. Going into food is like one of the most noble professions that you could do, not only because you're feeding people, which is you know an inherent good, but because you can actually solve this problem. People who are food scientists, food marketers, microbiologists, tissue engineers, like people who can go into uh, food production and actually create more sustainable ways of feeding uh, increasing population, I think these are the heroes of today and into the future, more so than uh, other people who are also similarly nobly motivated, but are not offering uh, more of a solution, but rather are mainly just pointing out what the problems are. We know what the problems are. We're raising too many animals. We don't have enough room on the planet. The plant's not getting any bigger, but humanity's footprint on the planet is getting a lot bigger. And so when I think about people who can actually save the world, and I mean that in a real literal way, like really saving the world. Uh, I'm thinking about people who are food scientists and others who can help the food industry do a better job of feeding the uh, nearly 8 billion of us today and the coming billions more into the future. Mm. You know, um, you know, I would second a lot of that. Uh, I've been uh, involved with technology for the food industry for over 25 years now. And I tell people all the time, uh, 25 years ago, 15 years ago, it was viewed as a pretty boring industry, but it is really getting pretty dynamic right now. There's so many exciting things going on, and I think it is a great career option for young professionals to, to enter this industry. I couldn't agree more, Gary. I couldn't agree more. I do want, I do want to just point out one stat from your book, though. You point out about globally how, how much the food industry spends on R&D, 1%. Versus, uh, yeah. versus the computing industry, 25%, healthcare, 21%, automotive, 16%, I could go on. Is that changing? Because that kind of ties back to your, we, we, we need hundreds of millions of dollars pumped into clean meat, not tens of millions of dollars. So how do you reconcile all that, Paul? 
Yeah, it's a great question, Gary. I don't know the answer to whether that is changing or not. Um, I, I hope that it is, um, but, you know, we'll see. I mean, it seems to me like there's a lot more, you know, R&D going into creating new types of cereals uh, than there is uh, creating more sustainable protein. Uh, but uh, the success of companies like Beyond and Impossible will, will certainly change that. I mean, now you see many of the major meat companies themselves putting out meat-free foods. Everybody from Hormel to Tyson, um, and uh, others are putting out their own competitors to uh, the, you know, the beyonds and impossibles of the world now. So there's a lot of innovation happening there, and I think that the plant-based meat market is going to get a lot more crowded as the pie continues to expand. You're you're an optimist. You 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 think we're gonna we're gonna solve these problems and we're gonna have a better planet. It sounds like. Well, I hope so. I mean, I think that if we have a chance of doing it, that it'll come about through food technology. Uh, I, I don't think that there's going to be some mass awakening and we're all going to go and eat quinoa and tofu as much as I love quinoa and tofu. Uh, I, I just don't suspect that that's going to be what's going to transform the diets of the billions of middle class people around the world, uh, much as I wish it would be the case. So, yeah, I'm optimistic that food technology can solve this problem, whether it will solve it in time is another question you know with climate change occurring at the rapid pace that it is i do get nervous that i'm not sure whether there will be enough time to actually solve this before it's too late so that's one of the reasons why i'm so bullish on blending is because it's something that we can actually do today you know the meat companies today can blend their meats and uh, uh, whereas something like uh, clean meat is still years off from being a, a solution that can make a dent in the numbers. Uh, I think it's important to invest in it. I think it's really critical that we continue to pursue it. But I think we need other more short term, more short term uh, solutions as well. Mm-hmm. Well, on that note, we'll wrap up. I want to thank my guest today, Paul Shapiro, author of the best selling book, Clean Meat, How Growing Meat Without Animals Will Revolutionize Dinner and the World and founder of The Better Meat Company. Paul, good luck with your new enterprise. I hope you have fantastic success. Thanks, Gary. It's been fun talking with you. I really appreciate it, and I look forward to our paths crossing again soon. Thanks for listening to C2C, where we cover innovation in the food and CPG business from conception to consumption. Just type the letters C-T-O-C, no spaces, to find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and Google Play. This podcast is produced for informational purposes and does not constitute any scientific, legal, or medical advice. The views and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are those of the guest alone and do not necessarily reflect the opinions and positions of the host or any other entity or organization. Listeners are encouraged to listen with an open mind and form opinions of their own.